Good morning. I think you'll agree that there is a beauty in unity. A while back, I used to be a bit of a rugby union fan. You'd see a game where everything just rolled phase after phase and it was magical. The team worked almost perfectly together and it was an absolute delight to watch. If they played like that, generally the Australians won. You saw a team at work, striving together, supporting one another to achieve a common goal. Now recently we've been hearing a bit about Team Australia, and many have been surprised to see that our political system uh, was displaying an uncommon unity. And as a result of this, they seem to be able to achieve so much more. We've seen it also in the community, with people pulling together, caring for one another, accepting real cost to themselves for the good of others. There is something compelling about unity. Now, you can see that unity works. If you've ever been part of a unified group, whether a family or work team on the sporting field, a community group or church, you know the benefits. You know them because you just love being part of that group and you seem to get so much more done with so much greater ease. But as Christians, as the church, we shouldn't just have a utilitarian view on unity. Our unity, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, is an expression of our faith. He writes, There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope when you are called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Unity is beautiful. But these moments are all too fleeting. Why does unity not last? And what can be done about it, if anything? Now, our passage from God's Word this morning is going to help us dip into that topic. There are three points. Calling, challenge and cure. Good morning, everyone. My name is David. I'll be doing this morning's reading. Uh, but first, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for giving us your holy word, the Bible, that we may learn about you, learn how to serve you, learn how to love and serve others. Pray that you help us to understand it and apply it to our lives, Lord, through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning's reading is from the book of Philippians, starting at verse 1 of chapter 2, and going through to the end of verse 13. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, 
Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, and the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, the will to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks for that. Our first point, calling. Now, this sermon is a continuation from Matt's sermon from last week. It's on the website in case you missed it. Those two are essentially connected, our passage being a continuation of the section of Philippians, starting with chapter 1, verse 27. Now, Matt helpfully translated verse 27 for us. Whatever happens, Paul writes, live out your citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let's draw out what this verse says about our identity and calling. Now Paul is telling us that we whose faith is in God through the gospel of Christ, we are citizens of God's kingdom, a kingdom much more powerful than Rome. It tells us that we who trust in the promises of God through the gospel are subjects of a king so much more glorious and of a radically different nature to Caesar. Paul reminds us here that the gospel of Christ is at the heart of our citizenship. The fact that our king ransomed us rebels with the currency of his lifeblood. Now that is our identity and calling. We are citizens of a kingdom, subjects of the king, and there are obligations of citizenship. We are called to live in a manner consistent with what God has done for us. But there are also benefits. And Paul spells out a few of these for us in chapter 2, verse 1. And these form the basis of his appeal that we're going to spend most of our time on today. There are a series of questions that all assume a positive answer. He writes, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, and you do, 
We do. We have been saved. We rejoice and rest our hearts in it. If you have any comfort from his love, and you do, we do, through Christ's death for us that we can call him Father. If we have any sharing in the Spirit, and we do, we have come to share in the Holy Spirit the down payment of God's promised blessing, his power at work in our lives. If you have any experience of Christ's tenderness and compassion, and you do, we have this from Christ, received when we repented and came back to God. These are some of the radical benefits of citizenship, and Paul says they should affect our lives. The relationship that we have with God through the gospel, the vertical, affects our relationships in the here and the now, horizontal. And Paul is telling us that the reality of God's love lavished upon us becomes the motivation and empowering for what he then calls us to do in verse 2. Make my joy complete, he writes, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Because of the blessings God has poured out in Christ, Paul is calling them and us to unity. The vertical affects the horizontal. Unity with Christ calls for unity with his people. A unity of relationship as well as a unity of purpose. Being part of God's kingdom relates us to the king, the vertical, as well as to his subjects, the horizontal, and our relationship with the king determines the nature of the relationship that we have with the other subjects of the kingdom. And united together as his people, we are called to have a common mind, to work for his purposes. This brings us to our second point, challenge. I think it's fair to say that true unity, unity of relationship and unity of purpose, is really rare. You know, the sporting star comes off the field and comes out with the line, well, it's actually all about the team. Do you actually think they believe it? Politically, it hasn't been very long and we're starting to see the fractures in Team Australia as the traditional divisions and point scoring returns to the parliament. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you'll know that this kind of unity in churches as well is unfortunately all too rare. Now the Philippians knew this. Why else does Paul need to encourage them to be united? Simply, they were divided. There's whinging and discontent. Chapter 2, verse 14, Paul encourages them to do everything without grumbling or arguing. Why? Because that's exactly what they were doing. Two key leaders are at each other's throats. Chapter 4, verse 2, Paul writes, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. What is the issue? 
Why is it just so hard? What is it that undermines unity? Well, Paul gives us the answer in verse 3. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now we get selfish ambition. In the original, it's a word that means illegitimate striving for advantage. We understand that. But the second idea, vain conceit, is a bit less clear. What is it? Well, in the original, it's a compound word. It's two words put together that literally means empty glory. And this gives us insight into the issue. Our bad behaviour is fuelled because we ourselves are empty of glory and we are seeking for that void to be filled. Or perhaps we strive because deep down we know that what we have filled that void with is hollow and empty and vain. But regardless, we are trying to fill the glory void. We try to assemble a CV for our ego to look at and feel good about ourselves. The Danish writer Soren Kierkegaard touches on this in his book Sickness Unto Death when he argues that the human ego inevitably searches for something that will give it a sense of worth, a sense of specialness and a sense of purpose and it builds itself on that thing. And so how do we see this? Simply, we use others for our own benefit to fill that void. Or as Paul says in verses 3 and 4, we value ourselves above others and we seek our own interests first. What is it that destroys unity? Self. Self-focus. Self-absorption. Now let's explore this a little bit further. The New York pastor Tim Keller, in a sermon on this passage, he draws on the work of another American pastor from a few centuries back, Jonathan Edwards. He identifies four key facets or four masks that this self-absorption wears. They may look quite different on the surface, but underneath each has this essential self-focus. Now the first is drivenness. The drive for excellence, the drive for success. Now let me say, it's possible to be motivated by the love of the thing, the art or the sport or the business or whatever that you are trying to excel in. But this is not the norm. For most, the drive is rooted in the desire to make a name, to be the best, to be better than them. It's a wonderful illustration we find in the 1984 movie Chariots of Fire. You have Harold Abrahams and Eric Liddell, both elite athletes in competition with one another. Liddell, a Christian man, speaks of why he runs. I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And we see in the movie when others succeed, he is genuinely pleased. But Abrams is a different character. 
Once having been beaten by Liddell, he shouts, I don't run to take a beating. I run to win. If I can't win, I won't run. And then just prior to the 100-yard final in the 1924 Olympics, he speaks of his motivation. He says, in just a short while, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence, to fill the void. But will I? Liddell is motivated by a love of running and his love for God. Abraham's is desperately trying to fill the glory void. That's the first. Now the second mask is scornfulness. You know, treating others with contempt, putting them down. Now this could be the arrogance of the victor, the person up the top pushing others down from above, or the spite and the malice of the vanquished, those underneath pulling down those above them. Scorn can come from either angle. And as Australians, we've made a sport of this. We call it tall poppy syndrome. And many see it as a good thing that we might bring another down to size. The third mask is willfulness. You've simply got to have things your way. You are utterly convinced that you are right. You resent correction and advice. You resist being taught because simply you know what is best. Now, now, lastly, and perhaps surprisingly, our fourth mark is self-consciousness. The self-pitying, the deep sense of inferiority, afraid of compliments. But the person who keeps telling you that they are nobody are just as self-obsessed as the person who keeps telling you that they are somebody. It's still all about the self. Which of these are you prone to? Which mask do you wear? Which aspect of pride, because that's what it is, is your chosen poison? We all have it. Self-absorption is universal. It's the very essence of human sin. We put ourselves on the throne in the place of God. C.S. Lewis, the Christian author, writes about how deceptive and destructive pride is. He says in Mere Christianity, there is one vice of which no person in the world is free which everyone in the world loathes when they see it in someone else, and of which hardly any people ever imagine they are guilty of themselves. The vice I am talking about is pride or self-conceit, and the virtue opposite it in Christian morals is called humility. And he writes about how dangerous it is. He says, pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. We need to recognize it in ourselves and we need to repent. Our pride and self-absorption 
will destroy any meaningful unity that strives towards a purpose that it is not the gratification of our own self-interests. It's so against the grain. It's against the grain of our society. We're generally okay with helping others as long as we are okay first. As long as we look after ourselves first, then we might be able to help others. We must love ourselves first before then we can love others. We must look to self first. So you can understand why people, they have trouble with Paul's words. They reject the call to humility in verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, In humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. It's so easy to sideline the call to take our eyes off ourselves. The encouragement to look to bless others, to seek their good, even at personal cost, to take this attitude of a servant is rejected. It's so easy to ignore or rebel against the command to be humble. But is it possible? Is the self-absorption inevitable for people? Is, is there a cure? Is true humility possible? And if so, how can we get it? Brings us to our last point, cure. Now, I wonder if you've seen the issue. If pride is self-focus, self-absorption, then how do you develop in yourself? I must work on my humility. Do I feel good about it when I succeed? Do you see the irony? C.S. Lewis again captures this tension in letter 14 of the Screwtape Letters. A wonderful book recounting the correspondence of a senior devil, Screwtape, with his nephew, Wormwood, in which he offers all kinds of advice about how Wormwood could under undermine the faith of his patient. He writes, Your patient has been humble. Have you drawn attention to the fact? All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them. But this is especially true of humility. Catch him at the moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection. By Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately, pride, pride at his own humility will appear. If he awakes to the danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud of his attempt, and so on through as many stages as you please. So how can you cultivate humility? True humility will only come as the byproduct of something else. What is that? What is the cure? We need to take our eyes off ourselves. If the issue is self-absorption in all its forms, we need to be absorbed in something that has the power and the beauty and the majesty to take our eyes off ourselves. And that is what Paul does in verses 5 to 11. Now, this amazing passage is worth spending many sermons. 
but that unfortunately is not possible. But we need to see what Paul is telling them is the answer of how to cultivate humility. What is the cure? It is to gaze upon the beauty of humility in the wonder of Christ. Christ Jesus, who in loving and humble obedience to his Father, devotes everything to achieving God's purposes. He seeks God's glory and our good. Christ Jesus, who did not seek his own advantage, he emptied himself of divine glory. He made himself nothing. The eternal Son was born as a man to die. Christ Jesus, who did not seek to vindicate himself, but trusted his Father absolutely, leaving everything in his hands. And the Father turned utter rejection and shame to glorious acclamation. With the resurrection and the promise one day that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, Jesus is the ultimate model for us, but he cannot just be a model. He cannot merely be an example. If that was the case, we would look to him and then we would put our eyes back upon ourselves, trying so hard to be humble like him. We need him not only as a model, but as a saviour. We need our hearts and our minds to marvel that Jesus did this for the Father's glory and for our good. We need to be amazed that the privileges of citizenship in God's kingdom are ours freely. We need to rejoice in the blessings that pour from the nail-pierced hands of our King. More and more we need to know the encouragement that comes from being united with Christ by grace through faith. We need to rest more and more in the comfort of his love, knowing that we are loved children and that our Heavenly Father will never turn us away. We need to rejoice more and more that we share in his Holy Spirit and that his power is at work in our lives day after day, enabling us to live radically Christ-shaped lives. We need to experience more and more of the tenderness and compassion of our Saviour, our brother and our friend. We need to gaze upon the beauty of our Saviour. And it is then that we will forget self because we know that we need nothing else. He has met our every need perfectly. By his grace, he has filled that void to overflowing. And so in our hearts, let us anticipate the day that every knee will bow at Jesus' name on earth or in heaven or under the earth and every tongue will acknowledge that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.